All right. Well, welcome to the show today. And Thank today's you. guest is Stephen Nakmanovich, who is a author and also a uh, trained professional violinist. Um, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so I first met, well, I got introduced to your work actually by a friend of mine um, who had recommended the book because I was going through some creative changes in my own life. And he's like, you got to get this guy's book, uh, Free Play. And I read it and I absolutely love it. Thank you. So could you just give me a little bit of info of um, when did you really get into the uh, your creative free play? When did that spark you? Well, I guess it must have sparked me uh, the moment I was born. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and the same is true for every other human being. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I have my own personal history with my interest in the arts and mm -hmm. love of music and love of other arts and love of science and curiosity that every kid has. Um, uh, so the, uh, I guess my trick answer to your question actually pops us right into uh, one of the main themes of my new book, The Art of Is, um, where I talk about, um, you know, there's something that happens in the workshops that I teach, uh, where people who, sometimes people are experienced improvisers, sometimes they're classically trained musicians or members of other professions who have never thought of themselves as improvisers. And the question is, what do you, what is in your background that prepares you for this? So what's in your background that prepares you for this is being a baby. Because every human being engaged in musical, expressive, beautifully modulated communication with voice and body as a baby. We all know how to do it. We all know how to improvise. And that those primal improvisations of us as babies then get differentiated into all the um, wonderful forms that human culture can take. And then as we become better trained in those forms of human culture, sometimes we forget where it came from and we forget that baby nature. And so one of the things that artistic practice does for us is bring us back to that baby consciousness, but with the sophistication we have as adults. Can you elaborate on what you would categorize as the baby consciousness of the creativity of the creative essence of, can you play on that a little bit? Mayemo mamo, we can do it together. Here we go. 30, 50 seconds of improv together. Mayemo mamo. Miami mamo. Yamo te yenge te yenge bo. Yami tiengo tiengo tiengo. Jemo tiengo 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 popoyo popoyo. Popoyo 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 cuckoo 
Cuckoo, 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 cuckoo. So as you take those cuckoo sounds, uh -huh. vary them. Okay, what's just happening in this tiny little baby experiment we just did is that um, you make sounds, um, you vary them, uh, you respond to the other human being that you're with, and even if you're alone, you're responding to all the human beings that have always been around you. And you perceive patterns and you amplify those patterns and they become more rhythmic perhaps or more patterned in other ways. And gradually that differentiates into creative or artistic practice. Okay. Just as um, the very simplest molecules mm -hmm. gradually um, differentiate themselves into being um, dinosaurs, human beings, ferns, redwood trees, and all the rest of it. The very complex comes from the very simple. So if we begin with a very simple practice, it can then become very complex and very interesting. So on that, I have a question in regards to your workshop of really bringing out the, um, you know, one of the one of your great quotes that I loved was to the extent that we thus empty ourselves, uh, we can be spiritual artists. Um, so in your workshops, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see with people holding back their creativity and how do you uh, break that for these individuals? Oh, well, I break it by holding mine back. Okay. Because when you talk about um, emptiness and silence, as I have gotten older, um, I have learned to teach by doing less and sometimes by doing nothing. I mean, very often um, I have learned that I can go into a room and just step back and just make a little gesture or something and people do interesting things. And it's so um, fascinating to um, learn to do less. It's very hard to learn to do less because we live in a culture where um, you're expected to prove your worth by being uh, proficient and skilled and productive and all of that stuff. So if you are um, a person who is standing up and producing something for people, whether you're a pianist at a concert, whether you're a teacher standing up in front of the class, um, giving a talk, whether you're a student standing up in the class giving a talk, there's always this sense that you're being graded and assessed and that you have to give the people their money's worth. And that often causes us to be very busy. And to step back and to not be afraid of silence and to allow things to germinate in the room mm -hmm. is a really, really interesting practice. So by just allowing people this, the opportunity of the silence, the, the emptiness within uh, verbiage, dialogue, uh, 
that helps bring out the creativity for these individuals well, to it does. and then of course people you know that doesn't mean um that anything goes in a way you know we still yeah. have judgment and we still have a sense of quality but um in my new book the art of is i quote from an old friend of mine al wonder who's a um, wonderful teacher of movement theater dance all kinds of cross disciplinary theatrical arts and he points out um the experience that we all have probably had beyond a certain age of being in the room when a one-year-old kid walks for the first time. And when we're there in that room with the kid, you know, and if we're lucky, I mean, I, would, I certainly remember with my own kids and with other kids I've known to be lucky enough to be at the moment when the kid takes the first step. And uh, what do people do? Applaud. They applaud. Cheer them on. Okay, now, the kid actually did not walk very well. You know, Al Wonder pointed out that the kid, um, you know, the kid is falling down and getting up and stumbling and maybe can take two steps before falling down and then picks him or herself up. Okay, and nobody is saying, as, for example, I've seen at very high-level master classes in music by wonderful artists, um, the equivalent of saying, oh, Johnny, uh, your walking was really good. Now, next time, if you hold your back straighter and lift your knees higher, you'll walk even better. Okay, Wonder points out that everybody is clapping and supportive of the kid because they know that the kid knows that he or she fell down. They don't have to be told that mm -hmm. okay, when musicians or actors or inventors or whatever you may be are in a room and they make mistakes. They know that they made mistakes. Nobody has to point it out. Mm -hmm. And knowing that they made mistakes, they then naturally um, adjust their activity to be more like what they want it to be. And it takes time and it takes practice. But during that practice, people are aware of what they're doing. They're aware of the patterns. They're aware of where things fall out of the patterns. They're aware of new patterns that can arise. And that's where learning takes place. So to step back as a teacher, and be quiet doesn't mean that you're giving up your sense of quality and your sense of, you know, what is interesting work. You're just having faith that the people around you also have a sense of quality and interesting work and that they will come to it given the freedom to do so. I see. I see. It's like uh, almost allowing uh, the performer to perform and then the, you know, the, the coaching and the, the critiques come after the uh, right. performance and the, in whatever field that maybe is after it's over. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, what's one of the, you know, creativity is so unique and original. Um, 
And I'm curious, what is one of the uh, challenges that you see with artists in any field that you may get to the, the pleasure of, uh, you know, doing your workshops and whatever artists you get, but what's one of the big challenges you see that's in a way of uh, allowing the art to flow in whatever form well, it may be? Of course, one of the things is people thinking that creativity must be unique and original, <laughs> right? Because... Um, <laughs> Really interesting creativity can also be very boring and humdrum. John Cage said that if you find something boring for two minutes, try it for four. And if you find it boring for four minutes, try it for eight. And if you find it boring for eight minutes, try it for 16. And eventually you'll find that it's really quite interesting. Hmm. Okay. And when we talk about originality, um, we have this sense that we have to do, again, it's something that's inculcated in um, modern uh, Western and American culture, that um, you have to do something that's all new, that's all original. And, um, you know, I mean, the word innovation has become a kind of ugly and hideous buzzword in business circles. You know, it's more like an advertising slogan than anything of interest really mm -hmm. but uh, there's this sense that people uh that you have to do something entirely new for it to be creative uh whereas to do something that comes from you the origin you know we all took um, geometry in school and you know there's the x-axis and the y-axis huh? and the origin is the place where they meet you know so the origin of if you are the origin of everything that you have digested and learned and processed through your life then that's originality it's not that you have to do something that no human being has ever done before and even those who do something that's all new that no one has ever done before, there'll still be constant echoes and uh, playbacks of things that other people have done. Of their influences. I guess that leads me into the quote where you talk about stand on the shoulders of giants and don't let the giants stand on your shoulders because there's no room for their legs to dangle. Yes. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so with that said then, what's one of the uh, a common a commonality, a common challenge you see with people not allowing um, their creative juices to, you know, give themselves permission to go and see what happens of create a business or whatever it may be for them. What's one of the things you see? Um, fear. And in a sense, artists, uh, you know, I'll just, I'm going to use artists in general here. There's the, the starving artist uh, mentality, right? Um, well, there is that mentality. It's also true that a lot of artists are starving. Right. Uh, because our society um, does not really have a great interest in material that hasn't already been signed, sealed, and delivered by the authorities. You know, so that, so that in every art form, um, there will be um, thousands and thousands of practitioners mm -hmm. who are doing really interesting um, original art 
but who, whose work doesn't get recognized. And then, then there will be some people who do get recognized and the media, whether it be the mass media or the high culture media, tends to elevate those people. Uh, but if you look beyond that, um, I mean, in the world of avant-garde new music, uh, people have been bemoaning the uh, the sad state of you know the, the sad state of new music and the idea that in classical music the only good composer is a dead composer, but the fact is we're living in a golden age of new music right now of people all over the world who are creating really really interesting new stuff and actually getting it out there. And we're simply, um, we may be not aware of it uh, unless we look for it, but if we start looking for it, we're finding it everywhere. And then the other thing, of course, that you have to add um, to the um, equation of creativity or originality is ethics. Because um, simply to do something, I mean, there, an, another word for when I speak about coming from the origin of being the origin of what you do, very often people value authenticity mm -hmm. and they value the fact that you are really speaking your mind in an unfiltered way. Uh, but we know that from time immemorial through to our own time, there have been demagogues and dictators and charlatans who are very good at speaking their mind in their own way and take people in simply because of that sense of authenticity. So without knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it and have some sense of the value of others in the world, then all the originality and authenticity in the world is really no good at all. Of having no vision with it. Having no vision with it, you know. Yeah. And of course, we're seeing um, in 2019 the rise of dictators in many parts of the world, including ours, who have a knack for speaking uh, what people think and who have a knack for um, what we might call authenticity in a certain way and have a knack for using emotional words that, uh, you know, I sort of hate to call it poetry, but it is akin to poetry in a way in, in terms of using emotionally vital language, uh, even if it may seem crude. And, um, you know, that leaves us on the brink of some very, very destructive things. So uh, really throughout all time, uh, it's been important for people to know what they're doing, why they're doing it, mm -hmm. who they're doing it for, having some sense of altruism, some sense of ethical foundation to what they do, whether it be in the arts or science or business or politics or whatever they're Yeah, activity. and I feel art has always played an instrumental role in... Uh, bringing humanity together and really tapping into the essence of what if you're telling a story with a movie or a beautiful piece of music or writing, I think art does a lovely job at that. Um, and, you know, you have a great quote here and I want to read this. It was one of the first ones I actually wrote down in your book, free play was yeah. doing without being to attach to the outcome because the doing is the outcome. 
Now I want to yeah. throw in another piece of that. Uh, you know, I know a lot of artists would love to make a career out of their art. So for someone like you, how did you take that in? Cause I know that's very much, if you look back in the Gita, uh, you know, the Hindu teachings, it's right there. Uh, so I could tell you've studied a lot of different philosophies and theologies just by reading your book. Um, so how did you implement something like that in your own life, but still make, be able to, you know, do what you love and get paid at sit process at the same time? Well, sometimes I got paid for it, and sometimes I got paid for completely different things. Um, I mean, I have written an enormous amount of computer software in my life from a fairly early age. And when I was younger, that was uh, how I earned money on the mm -hmm. side in order to do my art. And uh, there's really, if you are, a, and again, I'm using artist in a very broad sense of the word. Sure to include many kinds of people. Mm -hmm. uh, so you often have uh, a choice if you are doing some creative activity that is not well paid, that um, you have a choice between doing some completely different activity part-time that makes enough money so that you can live on and so that you can do your creative work uh, or you can do an activity that is um, akin to your creative work, uh, but isn't quite the same, but that that makes money. You know, so you have actors acting in commercials and things like that, and musicians doing studio work. And uh, there's, there's pluses and minuses to both approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're doing the studio work, you may... Um, be honing your skills all the time in ways that you can't if you're writing computer software or working on a factory floor. Um, on the other hand, you are, um, if you do the computer software or the factory work or whatever it may be, or some side business, then when you practice your art, you're doing it exactly the way you want to do it. Uh, so you aren't being sort of shunted to the side. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really a choice that everyone has to make, you know, and it's, it is a good idea to survive and be able to pay the rent and, and all of that. So, you know, that's important. And um, how you take care of that really is your own path in life. Um, my uh, mentor, Gregory Bateson, the anthropologist and philosopher, looked at me when I was, I don't know, 22 years old, and he pointed at me and said, you'll never be taken seriously until you have gray hair. And sure enough, like clockwork, <laughs> that's how it developed. Can you can you actually play, give us a little bit in, uh, insight into that story of like what was the turning point? Uh, well, there's no one turning point. I mean, there, well, there can you can you lead us into uh, yeah? What was like a big challenge that you faced along the way that really brought out your you know authenticity? I'm going to say, uh, and that really maybe was a catapult, uh, a springboard for you. I don't think there was anyone. Um, I mean, there were certainly um, innumerable. I was very, very lucky to meet a pretty sizable number of really great teachers and mentors and interesting people in my life who validated what I was doing and encouraged me to go on and provided some tools for 
doing it. So those those people were really important. I mean, Gregory Bateson was one, Yehudi Menuhin was one, Jerome Bruner was one, Alan Dorland was one. There were, there were a lot of them. Uh, so I was very fortunate to meet some really interesting people in my life. And uh, I guess it helps to live a long time because then you get to meet more people. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and then... Um, you know, the kinds of feedback you get by doing that work um, results in more work. You know, it's it's like, you know, we gave the example of the baby walking for the first time. Yeah. So every time the baby falls down or doesn't fall down, those that's feedback and that's information. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, rather than looking at, you know, we like to dramatize our lives and think about oh there was the crucial tipping point or something like that uh but actually it's one continuous flow of trying and doing and messing up and trying and doing and doing yeah, it's like it. a sine wave that's right that's yeah right. yeah so what types of it was at any point in your career did you ever think of I might not make it or was this, did you know in your heart that this is what you were meant to do and that you were going to create a no, living? I, I didn't. I know. I mean, I, uh, again, the, if you, um, uh, I mean, I just was very stubborn and I just continued doing what I was doing. And of course the thoughts about not making it are constantly there or mm-hmm. the thoughts that, Oh, the next thing I do, I'm really, this is the one where I'll really make a fool of myself, you know? Is it, you know, those thoughts are always there, and that's a natural part of the process. So, what's one of your, I, I think, one of the great things you say here is uh, blocks are the price of avoiding surrender, and that surrender is not the defeat, but rather the key to opening out into a world of delight and nonstop creation. Mm. Can you elaborate on that? It's, to me, that's a beautiful uh, okay. quote right there. Yeah. Well, um, here we are, you know. Here we are. So every moment of our life has been um, some form of surrender. And at the same time, you know, that surrender allows you to uh, to do something interesting. I mean, in the new book, I, I was just looking down at my desk. So, of course, the people who are listening to this can't see this um, uh, postcard. The cover? Uh, no, the cover is here. Beautiful. Yes, so that's the cover. cover of the book. And this is a postcard. Uh, this is a painting of Herbert Zipper, uh, who appears um, in several chapters of my new book. Uh, Herbert was, I became friends with him um, in his 90s, in the 1990s in LA. And uh, he was a composer and conductor born in 1904 in Vienna. And he was a, um, you know, perhaps uh, somebody who might have been destined to be uh, another Bruno Walter or one of those, you know, really terrific mid-century conductors of classical music. Uh, But uh, when he was living in Vienna, the Anschluss came and uh, he was thrown into Dachau. And... um, he found himself um, uh, 
the third day, you know, it was like, this was before the death camps. This is when Dachau was a slave labor camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was um, uh, on his third day of slave labor, digging ditches or whatever the men were doing around him. And he started reciting some poetry by Goethe. And um, the people around him started pricking up their ears and most, you know, some of these men were illiterate, but many of them had no experience of poetry whatsoever. But they um, got it, you know. They had a sense of dignity and a sense of, oh, this is really an interesting thing in the worst place in the world. And he started organizing um, clandestine concerts behind the latrines. And he wrote these pieces, which were not, you know, great or innovative music, but they were what was needed at the time. And they played on junk instruments and um, they had guards posted. They had uh, their own guards posted to um, tell them to scatter if the Nazi guards were approaching. And he wrote some songs that spread from camp to camp. And um, he... Uh, it was before the, just before the war started, and his father had escaped to London and had some money, so he was able to be bribed out, and um, he went from Dachau to another camp, Buchenwald, and then he was bribed out and went to London, and he said, okay, and then he got a off job offer as conductor of the Manila Philharmonic, and he went, oh boy, you know, the Philippines are as far from Nazi Germany as you can get. So he went to Manila just in time for the Japanese to invade. And he ended up in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And, um, you know, he was a wonderful example of what people can do if they surrender to their circumstances. Okay, surrendering doesn't mean giving up and being ready to lie down and die, though, of course, mm -hmm. many people did die, whether they gave up or not. Um, what it means is you realize, okay, this is where I am. And these are the people that I'm around. And this is what I can do in this place. Mm -hmm. This is what I can do in this time. Okay. So most of us are fortunately not in prison camps though some people are now, um, but we all have life circumstances that we, when we realize that we, you know, that's why the book is called The Art of Is, is you recognize what is and you respond to it. And that is the most creative thing anyone can do is to recognize what's right in front of you and respond to it, whether it's good or bad. And just maximizing, utilizing everything in your surrounding. Yes. I yes. love that. Yeah. I love that. So as, you know, as an artist or the artist listening, uh, so for those who feel stuck and blocked, it's just surrendering to what's going on in the moment and creating from that standpoint. Yes. It's great. I was listening to uh, one of the, the bands I like that's newer is Imagine Dragons. And um, 
yesterday the the lead singer had a uh, put up on his account that he uh he had a live stream going of his creative process um and he was talking about not judging the creativity um that comes out and one of your quotes here is uh but our quest to learn to speak with our own voice you know finding the heart's voice what's one of the ways um that you've been able to utilize and helped other artists to find really what's in their own voice. Cause in a world that's constantly telling you, you know, what to say and what to do and how to be, I feel it's very challenging for a lot of people to even know who their own voice is and what that is. Well, how about house cleaning? Okay. Okay, house cleaning is uh, it's one of those aspects of surrender. Okay, uh -huh. we often think, okay, I'm a I'm a writer, uh, but I also have a teaching job, and I also have family duties to take care of, and I have to get the car repaired, and all the mundane all the mundane things or not so mundane things of everyday life are constantly intruding. So we have this tiny little a uh, bit of life in which to create our stuff. Uh, but one of the things that we'll think of as, a, uh, as an intrusion into our creative work is house cleaning. And what are you doing when you clean the house? You know, you are looking around you. You are finding objects to pick up. You are putting those objects away. You're realizing what they are. You're finding things that belong together that you didn't realize belonged together before. I mean, that's one of the definitions of creativity is putting things together that nobody thought belonged together, but actually they do. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do all the time when we're picking up our mess and when we're cleaning the floor and, uh, you know, I mean, again, like picking up, if you have a small child, you know, picking up after your kids is a big job, you know, or sometimes even a bigger child. And, uh, you know, but finding the connections between things, finding the way you want to reorganize space. So all of these aspects of creativity are present in the very mundane aspect of house cleaning. Hmm. I like that. I never, uh, I thought we, when at first I thought we were going to say house cleaning, like meant cleaning, like up on the inside of like, who are you not like cleaning? But I love that analogy of uh, taking the mundane and bringing the creativity and the twist into it. Yeah. Yeah. What's one of the things that, you know, on your mission as, you know, you have the free play, your new book, you, you, you travel around uh, teaching improvisation and these arts and you, you play, what's one of the things that, you know, the main focus of your mission that you would love to leave um, with, you know, the current artists and the future artists to come? What's one of the main messages that you're trying to get out there? Hmm. Don't, um, Don't allow yourself to, don't allow the complexity of yourself and your universe, and your universe uh, to be reduced to a simple message. <laughs> don't allow, be present with the complexity of everything around you. 
you know, I'm looking, I'm in my studio here and outside there's a forest. And the forest is, of course, like all ecosystems, including urban ecosystems, very complex and involves so many uh, variables mm-hmm. and so many different species intersecting and interacting. And that is the richness of the world that we work with as artists. And there's a very, very strong tendency in our culture because we like to make lists and we like to have summaries and headlines to reduce that to a, to a, a headline or reduce it to a message. Mm-hmm. So resist the tendency to have a simple message. To me, it, it sounds like a, a, a polymathic uh, answer. <laughs> right, which is to me someone who's very well read and read many different disciplines, and you know, you, it clearly comes up in your 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 writings. At least I pick up on that. Um, so I love that of utilizing. Uh, don't limit yourself to just one one message. Right. Yeah. So, as an artist. Uh, not utilizing one message, one, uh, I guess it's, you know, one composing play or uh, a live performance or a film. Um, I guess the the question here I'm going with is um, of continuing to reinvent, uh, transforming that creativity in these different aspects um, as an artist, uh, what's one of the ways that you give yourself time to create and maybe like, can you just kind of lead us into your own creative process a little bit? Mm. Well, it involves a lot of practice and practice involves a lot of silence. Mm -hmm. Silence involves a lot of patience and patience involves a lot of looking at what other people are doing and being really interested in that. And there's often a uh, sine wave of complexity, simplicity, complexity, simplicity. Uh, Just taking the time to be quiet, though, is so important. It's allowing the the creativity or the ideas just to flow? Well, I I was, uh, um, one time I had a, um, a series of events at the University of Michigan. And um, one of my hosts took me up to the bell tower there. They have an enormous bell tower with a carillon. It's one of the biggest carillons in the world. And uh, he let me ding on the bells there. And, you know, we're talking about like 12 foot bells that produce very loud sounds that carry Mm -hmm. a long way. And um, very often, you know, if you've been in a place like that, you know, around churches or other places that have carillons, you know, people will be playing, you know, the carillon air or whatever they're called, will will be playing some, whatever it is, a Bach or a pop tune or whatever it may be. And they're, and they're playing things that have a lot of content uh, as though it were like a piano. Okay, but the interesting thing about dinging that 12-foot bell is as you can imagine the sound 
propagates for a very, very long time. There's a huge reverb decay on that bell. And so when I played that bell, I hit it with one stroke and I wasn't going to hit it with another stroke until that first stroke died down because it would be kind of stepping on it. Right. Mm -hmm. So the only way to play an instrument like that is to play it very, very, very slowly. Okay. And that's kind of analogous to what we were talking about near the beginning of this conversation um, with the baby who's walking for the first time. Okay. Because the baby walking for the first time or the very advanced student playing in a master class, uh, it's so easy to wave at them and stop them and say, yeah, that's nice, but you can do these other things, you know. And so to not step on them. And to allow the, as in the bell, the reverb time of the bell to really ring out and really decay to nothing is often very challenging and it's very hard for us. But that to me is the essence of practice, is to try something, you know, um, the word experiment, uh, which is the French word experience, you know, to experience something and not immediately rush off and change it and do something else, but actually see where the data leads you is really interesting. So what I what I'm hearing yeah, what I'm hearing is like it's really just allowing the the instrument, and we'll just start with the human being as the first instrument, yeah. uh, to have the space to really get to know itself. Yeah. That's right. Sydney Pointier, one of my uh, people who has autobiography I found brilliant, uh, great actor, uh, first man to win the first African man to win Academy Award, said, as an artist, uh, you, you'll never be a great artist until you know the world that's within you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to me, a lot of your, your book, you know, your, at least your first book, and I'm definitely your, your, second, your second book is on the way to my home, just didn't have enough time. Um, but it's really a lot about, you know, getting to know uh, yourself. How important uh, do you teach that within your work of, you know, artists? And what, what's the difference you've seen with artists who really know themselves compared to ones who don't? And again, of course, um, all these terms like self and other are relative because you can't really know yourself unless you also know the world around you. Mm -hmm. And you can't know the world around you unless you know yourself. Yep. So paying attention. Attention and awareness. Uh, one of the really great um, artists I got to know in my life um, was Pauline Oliveros, the composer organizer of happenings she was a uh, she was a pioneer in electronic music and a pioneer in improvisation and a pioneer in group experiences and she um like me was very interested in correlations between buddhist practice and artistic practice and she had a really interesting once again you're 
your um, listeners can't see this, but I'll draw it for you and you can imagine it. She had an extraordinarily interesting diagram of two things, um, attention and awareness. So we got a circle with a dot in the middle of it. That's correct. And the dot in the middle is attention and the circle is awareness. Mm -hmm. And so to pay attention, you know, this again, you know, we're sort of getting to the end of this hour. Uh, and I'm finding that the parts of the hour are all kind of congealing into the same theme. So to pay attention closely to everything around you and see those points of focus, I mean, that's what happens in um, housekeeping. You know, you're scrubbing the floor and you're seeing this part and you're seeing that part and you're finding this interesting thing. And um, seeing, doing housekeeping, raising a child, practicing your instrument, um, paying attention to your breathing, they're all aspects of paying attention. And meanwhile, there's the awareness, which is the huge surround mm -hmm. that you're aware of all things at all times and places all around you with your peripheral vision. And to have both attention and awareness is Great. very important. Your, yeah. your reality and the actuality of what's really occurring around you as well. Right. Awesome. I know we're wrapping up on the hour, so I do want to hear more about the art of is. So if you could just give us a little summary of that uh, so the listeners can not only pick up free play, but also the art of is. Right. So the art of is um, began 25 years ago. Uh, not that long after I wrote free play, I gave a talk and um, like all the talks that I give, it was improvised, but I recorded it and then I get them transcribed and that transcription then turns into a piece of writing that I edit. And uh, I was um, driving at that time, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia now, but at that time I lived in LA where I grew up and um, um, it was a talk to um, uh, people who were interested in play. It was actually the National Convention of Parks and Recreations Educators. And I gave them this talk that was um, partly about, here you are invo professionally involved with play and with the arts and with things that our society finds useless or finds peripheral, or they're just like extra things that are added on after you've built your banks and your weapon systems and all of those things that are supposed to be important. And how do you not only do your work, but, but protect your work? And uh, I thought after I gave this talk that this really could be the nucleus of the next book. And I was driving back home late at night and um, uh, to LA and from Monterey. And um, I had the cassette tape of the talk in my backpack. And I was thinking, okay, I've got to get this transcribed and it will become something. And at that point, my wife was pregnant with our first son. 
And I was thinking I'd better write fast because I'm going to become a father in four months and my whole life is going to change immediately. And um, so it didn't take me four months to do the book. It took me 25 years. And in fact, it took 25 years for the baby to become the man who would be the midwife of the book. And my son, Jack, uh, worked with me on the final editing of the book after it had gone through so many phases and so many uh, iterations. And um, uh, Jack thought of the title, The Art of Is. And so it really came out as a, um, as a project that um, I could never have finished without him. And um, in a sense, free play is more about the spiritual insides of creativity. And the art of is is more about the social interactive outsides of creativity. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you for uh, coming on today and sharing your, your insights and your journey of, uh, you know, your improv of life and art on the show today so uh and you know the show is life unscripted so uh i find it uh humorous to put those two together there we go okay thank you very much for having me on it's great to talk with you absolutely and is there for the listeners where you know if they want to find out more about you is there a certain place that you love them to go to yes freeplay.com okay is my website and of course both books are available everywhere um i mean they're of course available from amazon and places like that but it's always best to um, order books from your local independent bookstore whenever possible because uh, real people have real jobs there and it's good to support that all right and i'm sure you can buy them off your site too so you make more money uh, no, it's better to get them from bookstores or from um, the usual online places. Okay, so the local bookstores to find his books. There you go. Awesome. Okay. Take care.